Good morning. So it has been super good to be home. It's been really, really refreshing. I love Village Church. We love Village Church. Um, Dorothy says there's no place like home, and that is true. So today we're going to talk about Jesus, and I assume that that's okay. Um, so I want to talk today about who Jesus is. Who was John the Evangelist showing Jesus to be in this text? And my hope is that we come out of here more in love with Christ. So when we look at John's gospel, we're seeing a work that wants to emphasize something in particular. And I think that's important. John already knew the other three gospels. He'd read them and he'd used them as liturgical texts his, in his church for years. So, but as he was getting close to the end of his own life, he wanted to contribute something of his own will. Let's orient ourselves a little and remember where we are in this passage today. What's going on right now that's leading up to the conversation Jesus is having with these Jews? Earlier in chapter 6, y'all remember that Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and fought with five barley hot dogs and two cans of tuna? And really, it was more like 5,000 families. It was more like 10 or 12,000 people with women and children. So it was a lot of people. So Jesus feeds these people and they react in appropriate shock and awe. Verse 14 of chapter 6 says, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. And they were not referring to just any prophet, but they were referring to the prophet. The prophets that Moses promised the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. The, this prophet was the ultimate prophet. He would be a prophet like Moses who spoke to God face to face like a man speaks with his friend. And what did they do after they recognized him from God? When they looked at Jesus, they saw someone like Moses who had incredible power and authority. They thought that they saw the kind of Messiah they longed for, someone who could unite Israel against Rome and free them from their occupying oppressors. So they rushed at him and they tried to make him king by force. But for Jesus, Rome was small fish. They were just puppets. Rome was not the real enemy. Chaos and death are the real enemy. So after telling us about the feeding of the 5,000, John inserts a short little story that, that Seth told us about a couple weeks ago, and I want to revisit it and pick up some things. So Jesus had just fed the people, and the disciples who are serving as waiters pick up the leftovers. And by then, it's dark, so the disciples head to the parking lot to get into the boat, and right then, when the crowd came after Jesus to get, to get him to make him king, he had gotten away. He had evaded them and gone off by himself to pray. And then, and he did that pretty often, so the disciples were pretty used to it, so they just got into their boat. This time, though, the disciples started heading across the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum, which is about six or seven miles from where they were. And John is remembering how this happened to them as he writes, and he says that, as they were rowing, a strong wind picked up, and the lake began to get really choppy. So they were rowing hard against the wind. They had gotten maybe three or four miles across the lake, about halfway, when suddenly they saw Jesus like, over there like, 
in the middle of the lake walking by. I know so many of us have heard this story so many times that we can just kind of gloss over. It is just another cool miracle story. So I want to help us see the major significance of what John is telling us. What's the point? For ancient cultures, for thousands of years, large bodies of water were not something fun and exciting. You did not build a home 50 feet offshore and go out to the lake whenever you wanted and go swimming for fun. Water was scary. When we look at what they thought, water flooded your village and killed your crops and animals. Water was uncontrollable and dangerous. Ancient cultures associated water specifically with chaos and death. For example, when we look at the first couple of chapters of the Bible, when we see um, the earth in its primordial state, it was without form and void, as the King James puts it. It was wild and waste. It was chaos and emptiness. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. God spoke and created order out of chaos. He spoke and dry land appeared. A land, dry land meant safety. Somewhere men could live without fear of imminent death. In fact, when, when the same John here is writing his apocalypse, his revelation, he sees a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And in his description, John, sa- John says something that seems kind of like it's just in passing, and we could completely miss it. He says in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And we know that, and we love that. What's the next line? And the sea was no more. Hold on. I love the ocean, right? I love the lake. What's going on? April and I love to go to the beach. Is there no beach in heaven? (laughs) Well, what is the sea to ancient people? Why is it important that there's no more sea? The sea is chaos, disorder, unpredictability, danger, and fear, and death. Think about the Apostle Paul. He says he was shipwrecked four times. In their time, ships would only sail within sight of shore, maybe a mile out. When ships ventured off into the ocean, they just didn't come back. Think about that. So when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more, we know that that's the best news possible. Not only that, but John says that there actually is a sea in the New Jerusalem. He says this, I saw something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, also before the throne. And this isn't a huge, shiny mirror floor. This is the sea, so calm and at rest that it could be mistaken for crystal. It's not a frozen lake either. April and the girls and I have seen plenty of those this winter. And Wisconsin's cold. Just remember that. So when Jesus... What Jesus is doing here as he walks casually across the raging sea, what is he doing? He isn't just taking a shortcut. He's telling them something, and John is telling us something. A few thousand years before this storm, Job tells us about God. In Job 9.8, he says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Only God walks on the waves of the sea. Only God can tell the sea to be still. Only God can create order out of chaos. And Jesus gets right into the boat. 
And John says that then immediately they were at the shore where they were rowing so hard to get to. Jesus tells the sea what to do, and the sea obeys. I imagine the wave in Moana here just kind of pushing the boat along like a speedboat. And I realize it may not have happened like that, but don't ruin it for me. So here we are again at our passage. It's the next day, and the crowds have hopped into some boats themselves, and they've headed to Capernaum to find Jesus. And if we remember from Hannah's sermon last week, this crowd wanted something from Jesus, but they confused the gift that they had received with the giver. They wanted the stuff that Jesus could give them more than Jesus himself. They wanted a leader who could provide them for them materially, but they did not think that Jesus' identity could be any bigger. So let's take a look at the passage for today and see what's happening. It's hard to pick up a passage mid-conversation, so we're going to go back for a little bit. Just, Jesus was just telling them about the bread that the Father gives that comes down from heaven. And the people respond to Jesus completely missing the point. They say, wait, you can give us free food from heaven like Moses? Sir, give us this bread always. And you can kind of imagine when Jesus hear this, hears this, he does one of these. He, he tells them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, believed, uh, that you have seen me and you do not believe. It's kind of scary to think about this, isn't it? What kind of people have seen Jesus' work? They have experienced Jesus, but they still don't believe who Jesus is. They've tasted the heavenly gift and experienced the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews 6 says, but they still don't trust Jesus. Everything they need is right in front of them, but they're still choosing to hide and hide and close the door of their heart. They're only concerned about the here and now. These Jews just experienced the most incredible sign. They knew it was special. They knew he was the prophet foretold by Moses, but they had such materialistic and earthly expectations for the Messiah that they missed who Jesus was. Let's pause for a second and think about that. Does anyone here, does anyone here have expectations for Jesus that he isn't meeting? Do you feel that he was supposed to do something for you that he didn't do? Are you frustrated? I can empathize with you. No one loses a child or a close family member without wanting something from Jesus. So what does Jesus do here? He starts to explain more in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What's Jesus telling us? Jesus is saying that those who come to the Son, whoever comes to Jesus, these people are a gift from the Father to the Son. In some sense, they already belong to the Father. And I think we can't fully explain this. This is a mystery, but it's a mystery that we can gaze upon. And we can wonder at the mystery of the sovereign grace of God towards us before we could do anything or choose anything. 
St. Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We belong to God. It's really important to see that the Father is the source of everything here. He gave the manna in the wilderness. He fed the people with bread from heaven. And now the Father is giving his people the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus. And it's the Father who's giving those people to the Son. The Father is the giver, and we receive from his grace. The Son then takes them, and he keeps them, guarding them. He says that there's no way he would ever cast out anyone who comes to him. He will never lose you. He will never leave you. He will never let you go. He may not save you from the pain of grief or loss or heartache, but he won't leave you either. He won't cast you out in your need. What does he say next? Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. He says it twice. This is what the Father wants. It is because of the Father's heart of love. Jesus says, he wants me to guard his people, the people he is giving me, and I will not lose anyone who looks to me and trusts me. If you come to me, not only will I not reject you, I won't lose you. You are safe. You are secure. The Father is for you. I am for you. I am yours, and you are mine. But we ask, how secure are we? Jesus says repeatedly in this passage, and I will raise them up on the last day. We're secure even to death. Let me read you the last few verses of Romans 8. We know this passage well. I think it fits perfectly. 31, verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will, we not, how will he not also grant him, grant, with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This passage always makes me want to yell with joy. Amen? This is my point. The claim Jesus is making here in John 6 is that he is the final word. We have nothing to fear. We will live again. Jesus gives his, us his own life, and the life he will give us is a reversal of sadness and tragedy and death. 
And so he says he will raise us up at the last day, overcoming the last and greatest fear we have, destroying the last enemy, which is death. But what do the Jews do with this? Do they say that he is the Lord of life and they trust him? No. They do the same thing that their ancestors do when they received manna from heaven. They begin to grumble and complain. Even though now these descendants of Israel have the true bread from heaven, who has come down, standing in front of them, they say, wait a minute, what's he doing saying he came down from heaven? We know where he's from. We knew him as a child. We know his parents. Good people, a little eccentric with their stories, but good people. Who does he think he is? The Jews think they know who Jesus is and where he's from, but they can only think in materialistic and earthly terms. And they get completely stuck on where Jesus is from and completely miss where Jesus is actually from. And they miss who he is. But Jesus knows. He knows their hearts. Verse 43 says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus says, listen, people, stop mumbling to yourselves. I know you don't know who I am. And then he quotes Isaiah 54. And they will all be taught by God. Isaiah is talking about the eschatological day, which is the ultimate day of restoration, when Jerusalem will have restored relationship and renewed intimacy with Yahweh. When Jesus is applying this text to himself, he's saying something incredible, that the blessings of the ultimate day of restoration are already beginning in his ministry. God's promises to Jerusalem are being fulfilled in Jesus. And anyone who recognizes who Jesus is will realize that they are being taught by God himself. And this is why he came down from heaven. He came to restore the relationships with, of God with men. He came to give God's own life to anyone who comes to him. He came to share his life with us. And in verse 51 of our passage, Jesus tells the Jews how he's going to do that. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about receiving Jesus for who he is. And we receive Jesus today and every week. He came to share his life with us. He shares his life with us in the bread and wine. Jesus says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So let me close with this. Let's ponder this for a moment. Where are you today? Where are you emotionally? Where are you spiritually? What do you need? 
What are you wanting Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to fix your problems? Make your problems go away? What if he, what if he doesn't take the pain away yet in this life? Who are you hoping Jesus will be for you? Is it someone who does what you want him to do? And who is Jesus really? One of my favorite lines from the Chronicles of Narnia is when the Pevensey children have just gotten to Narnia. And they are looking for Edmund, their brother, who has betrayed them and he was taken captive by the White Witch. In this section, they are learning about Narnia for the first time in Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's dam. So Mr. Beaver is recounting the prophecy of the two sons of Adam and the two daughters of Eve who will sit on the thrones at Caraparavel. And that Aslan, the great lion, will come and crown them kings and queens of Narnia. I'll read you the quote. Aslan is the lion, the great lion, the lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that is it. Jesus is the king, I tell you. Father, help us to know that you are with us. Help us to know that you will never cast us out. Help us to see Jesus for who he is, the King of Kings. Draw us to yourself and give us your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.